The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. Brandon Peters show and we are back in more traditional style here today as we feature a discussion on the 1976 John Carpenter classic Assault on Precinct 13 and joining me for the discussion we have from Milky Way Blues and you hear him regularly on the feed for the out now with Aaron and Abe commentaries it's Yancey Burns hey gang glad to be here you have technically probably appeared on the Brandon Peters show many many times but this is your first time proper Right. Doing an episode, which is a long time coming. And we are here to crack open the new year with the first like regular episode of the new year. And it's a good one. It's a very good one. Very exciting. You doing all right today as we record this episode, Nancy? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm good. Long day at work, but uh, sure. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, this month is January, which is listeners know is my birthday month, but it's also the birthday month of one John Carpenter, one of my and Yancey's favorite directors. And Yancey has brought Assault on Precinct 13 to the table here. Freeze. This is the police. Drop your weapons and place your hands above your heads. On Saturday, six members of the gang known as Street Thunder were ambushed by the police. On Sunday, Cholo. the warlords of Street Thunder swore a blood oath to avenge their dead. For the gang called Street Thunder, it is a day of vengeance. It's war in the streets. Oh, Jesus, come on. Come on, I'll give you my money. Just don't hurt me. Please, please. It's terror in the night. It's the most shattering assault on a police station in history. Assault on Precinct 13. This is the siege. It's a goddamn siege. You want to stay here and hold until somebody comes, okay? We're in the middle of a city, inside a police station. They're not afraid to die. Any of them want to rip us apart, no matter what it costs. It means to the death. Precinct 13, cut off, isolated in the middle of a city, as a human wave of street killers turns the night into a nightmare. going on down here. We can't find the damn thing. A white-hot night of hate. Assault on Precinct 13. Written and directed by John Carpenter, starring Austin Stoker, Darwin Jostin, Laurie Zimmer, Tony Burton, Charles Cyphers, and Nancy Loomis, who also did the costuming for the film, and Kim Richards, 
Uh, it also features Deborah Hill in an assistant editing and script and continuity capacity. And Tommy Lee Wallace did the art direction for it. There's a lot of familiar names, as I like to always call them, the John Carpenter players. Uh, yeah. Doug, Douglas Knapp, who shot Dark Star for Carpenter, uh, did loads of TV, including voice of the show and frequent guest Jessica Allsman's, uh one of her favorite sitcoms, Dr. Doctor. Did 40 episodes of that. Uh, Battlestar Galactica, Buck Rogers, Coach, Murphy Brown, Star Trek Voyager, and Enterprise. Uh, the film features an unlikely partnership between a highway patrol officer, two criminals, and a station secretary is formed to defend a defunct Los Angeles police office against a siege of bloodthirsty street gangs. Okay, so before we get to why you brought this one to the table, I want to get your take on this. I would personally say this is the first official John Carpenter film. Dark Star, which is technically, if you look it up and stuff, is his first film, but that was like a student film that wound up getting theatrical release. So I don't really hold it to anything because there's a lot of wackiness, experimentation, a lot of Dan O'Bannon in that. So what what do you consider his first film? This, or do you go with Dark Star? Well, I mean, I like Dark Star a lot. And as you say, it, it, it it's strange to witness because it really is a fusion of Carpenter and Dan O'Bannon. And you can see both of where they would go. Um, it's definitely like a stoner comedy in space. Right. Which doesn't age particularly well for people. And then I never hear anyone talk about it, but the end of Dark Star, I think, is almost a straight adaptation of a short story by Ray Bradbury or Isaac Asimov called Kaleidoscope. Okay. Where it's, where it's just about astronauts floating away from the ship. They've, they've been cut free and they're just floating away to infinity. And it's sort of their thoughts. But certainly Dark Star, which is not in scope ratio, which is not, which feels a little bit more. I mean, Dark Star has a scene where they go looking for a monster in scary hallways of a, of a spaceship, which is exactly what Abandon would later do with Alien. Mm-hmm. And then Dark Star, it's, it's like this goofy beach ball. But you can certainly say that Assault on Precinct 13 feels like the first John Carpenter movie as we think of John Carpenter movies. Right. It's 3 5. Uh, Panavision. It's incredibly um, terse and and lean and effective, pitiless to an extent. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, I can certainly see why uh, Dark Star. I like in its own right as a sort of separate. You know, it's almost like John Landis and the Kentucky Fried Movie, which is split between him and the Zucker Brothers, and it sort of doesn't fit in either one of their. Right. I um, feel like it's a, it's the extra curiosity for the super fan where it's like, okay, you've seen yes. all the carp now, now check this little thing out. And it's like a bonus right. feature to his uh, cinematography or his cinematography, his filmography. I always wanted to see, I've never seen it, his student film that was nominated for an Oscar. Oh, yeah. Called Wild Bill or something. Mm-hmm. Something about Wild Bill, the life and death of Wild Billy or something. Yeah, he's got a, he's got like a, uh, proto slasher kind of one too that's of short student like i've always hoped that like someone like a shout factory or arrow would put together a collection of his short student films if there's because they're apparently still around usc i don't know if he owns any of them but that would be something i'd put money down they've i mean uh they've released like toby hooper's shorts and other directors little short films that carpenter seems like that'd be a no-brainer but perhaps the the french appreciate carpenter Everyone yes. appreciates Carpenter, but the Americans. Right, right. Well, now we do. A little late. But, yeah, we do. Um, I've got stuff about that later on. Um, but yes. you, this is your pick. So uh, 
Tell us why uh, you brought this one to the table. I didn't think you'd say yes right away. I wasn't sure. I was just throwing them out. And then when you did, I was like, okay. And then when you asked, when you sent the, the questionnaire, I thought, well, why did I pick it? It's a longtime favorite. I think it's my favorite John Carpenter picture, which is no affront to any of his later works because I think it's it depends how you defend depends on you depends on you define B picture. But I thought to myself many times, this is my favorite B movie ever, and. It's unlike Carpenter's other movies because it's basically a straight action movie. There's not a science fiction element um, to it, even though it feels like a John Carpenter movie. Mm -hmm. And sheer filmmaking ability and a taut script. And you don't need much else to make something that's great. I mean, I've seen this movie at least probably 20 times in my life. Starting with the first time I saw it was when they first released it on Laserdisc. I never even heard of it until I became a Carpenter fan. Then I went back and watched all his movies, realized how great he was after underrating him throughout the 80s because I was a Siskel and Ebert guy, mm-hmm. kind of like Joe friend, Peter Paris. And I got a little snobby probably when I was 14 or 15. And I didn't I thought that because all the Carpenter movies had gotten bad reviews in the 80s, that that meant they were bad. And a friend of mine, Robert, was the one to knock some sense in my head when he just listed off all the movies. And it was right around that time that they were finally putting them out in widescreen versions on Laserdisc. So I yeah. saw it a short amount of time. Escape from New York and Halloween, which Criterion put out, and this, which Image put out, a great widescreen laser disc of this with a great commentary track by Carpenter. I probably spun that thing in my late teens and early twenties, you know, twenty-five times. So it's just, it's just a very, I just, I think it's a great movie, mm-hmm. and, and, and I don't know. I don't know. Like it, it is, it's great, and I think it's it in hindsight is even greater once you get through the carpenter stuff I'll make most of his stuff and go back because it's an, it's a, it's pretty astounding how much of a fully formed voice he has that would carry on through right away like everything about John Carpenter was here from the jump and I'm not saying he didn't have anything else to say I'm just saying he was established like right there like for one, you know, he's got total creative control of the film. That's typically what he would have. But um, things you'd notice later on, like horror s- stuff, like the way he can light and shoot horror, stalking, invasions, anti-heroes. Yeah, I mean, you have the Snake Plissken archetype right here or a type of guy he'd like to use Kurt Russell for. Uh, he's crafting his own score in it. It's a neo-Western. Uh, two people at odds having a laugh at the end. Uh, I mean... It's all here. Every almost every one of his movies has a touch here. Even the empty police station, you could say, is somewhat Prince of Darknessy. Oh, sure. Want. Uh, and it's crazy. Like it's all here. It's it's all here. Like I mean, you have the start of some casting regulars and crew regulars, but as well. But that's typical with a lot of uh, early filmmakers, especially coming off um, film school and and things like that. But. Uh, it, it's just incredible. Like his shot compositions are are there to do callbacks. Just I, every time I ever go back to this, I'm like, geez, like what? This is the type of debut. I mean, it does. It's not as flashy. I don't think it got the respect that like Blood Simple got. But this is Coen Brothers esque, where it's like, holy crap, they're this good, like right away. And yeah, yeah. and uh, it's it's crazy. This one, I think it, it has respect. It became a cult film, but then it became, I think there's, I was going to talk about it later, but his filmography has sort of shifted in your 
what's the best ones the and the must-sees from back in the 80s to the 90s to now because back in the day the John Carpenter films to see this was probably up there probably in the 90s because it got looked back upon like you know what that was good uh this one you know Halloween of Halloween's only the one that's been the constant of like you got to see that one uh but I think like Starman and Christine were much higher up on the must-see carpenters back in the day uh and stuff like the thing has risen in the ranks of it um but this one i think has slowly left the must-see conversation a little bit and it should be there i think i think everything should be there for him it's fascinating but even some of his 90s stuff which is deemed way inferior still far more interesting than a lot of other inferior films yeah you know the the alternate story for john carpenter would have been that he that he continued to make films in the action or thriller genre <clears throat> after Assault on Precinct 13. Mm-hmm. If he wanted to chase critical approval, he could have continued to make, you know, thrillers, sort of, I guess, sort of Tony Scott type of movies. Not, he's not as overtly mm-hmm. stylized as Tony Scott. But as we all know, Carpenter, very right, the next movie he made was Halloween, and he very quickly got that moniker of, of Master of Horror. Right. And he is known now as 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 a, a genre filmmaker i think he's if we include sci-fi if we're saying sci-fi and horror is genre which they used to call it when i was a kid yeah. i think carpenter is the greatest genre director that we've ever had but it would make sense if we think of him as a genre guy why some people would not have seen his pre-halloween movie which is not yeah. it's certainly it certainly should appeal to genre fans because it's dark and violent and exciting but yeah not really a horror movie. So, like as I said, I hadn't heard of it growing up. It never aired on HBO growing up. I never heard of it. I'd heard of all the other Carpenter movies, mm-hmm. but 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 not not Assault on Precinct Thirteen. You know, I don't. I, it's just his earliest, and it doesn't fit in the genre he's famous for. And um, of course, that's a whole other conversation. But American <clears throat> critics are famously hard on horror movies, and the fact that Carpenter became a, a genre auteur, basically doing sci-fi and horror movies for the rest of his career it just it resigned him to being not respected and not appreciated I, uh, he was ahead of their them too like there's all these things that were just wacky and misfires then that we look at now and be like what why were these they were pioneering and like a generation saw them and were inspired it just wasn't the old people like or the older critics at the time i mean the older critics were anti-gore of course and right. had some gore but i just don't think there's any excuse I don't care how turned off you've gotten by horror. It's hard for me to believe. I remember how bad the reviews for like Prince of Darkness were. Oh yeah. It was just treated like an absolute piece of swill. And really it was the, it was a lot of critics going, boy, we liked Assault on Precinct 13. And I guess Halloween is good. But after that, he's just been making these stupid horror movies. So he got no respect. And that, that movie movies, like I remember one guy in LA who liked they live, but most of the time it was just treated like just, yeah. just degenerate tr- trash and I thought that was true until I finally wised up and and, and really saw them all. Yeah. And I remember it was the scene in this movie in Assault on Precinct 13 where it, there's, it's the second or third time that the street thunder opens fire on the on the police station. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's just silencers. Yeah. And there's like a piece of paper getting knocked into the air and knocked around by silencers. And it's so striking. Yeah. And you're like, this guy is great. Yeah, it's intense. Like, there's, it's, you know, famously, this is a sort of hybrid of Rio Bravo and Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. And with, man, an intensity that probably exceeds both of those, honestly, because gunfire is something that's a bit faster and 
coming out of nowhere more than a zombie. Um, yeah. As much as I, you know, like the Living Dead is one of my favorite films of all time. But um, this gunfire stuff just like out of nowhere. And you'll see people even like the Coen brothers doing something like this in No Country for Old Men where gunfire, silence, or fire from nowhere. Yeah. And it's, yeah, those are all intense. He finds different ways of attacking from outside um, from the other things. He got accused of this movie being cold a bit because he wasn't afraid to kill people. But I think it's part of the grounding it uh, with what he's doing. And by not so much humanizing the the gangs outside makes them unpredictable it makes them outside you know outside your vision you don't you don't know what they're going to do and i think that helps the intensity but if at the same time he's humanizing these two prisoners and tony burton and Justin, that are giving them something to do that's not cold to me that's you know saying hey the different kinds of bad guys <laughs> you know they're not going to just go join the bad guys cuz they're bad guys and um learning a bit about them while keeping the gangs a, a mystery outside to have unpredictable attacks and challenge the heroes inside. Right, 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 right. Um, yeah, I was just thinking about Rio Bravo again and how it's a little different in that mm-hmm. Rio Bravo is, Rio Bravo is a bunch of gang members trying to release is it Claude Akins or somebody who they've arrested? John mm-hmm. Gunwayne and Dean Martin his drunk deputy and then Walter Houston or, or or the other one, but you know the sort of old Daffy guy are defending. This is the police station at the end of this western town, and they've got mm-hmm. Claude Aikens, the cocky outlaw, and his and his men are coming in wave after wave, and they're defending against um, against these attacks, which is quintessentially Howard Hawksian, and it's quintessentially Carpenter. But Carpenter, you know, you said that he was. Um, I hadn't heard that. I mean makes sense that he was accused of being cold. I've heard over the years, various people that have worked with him who didn't really warm to him because I think, and it should be obvious from his movies, he's definitely a bit of a misanthrope. I wouldn't say, I think it's pretty clear. I mean, this is a guy who ends quite a few of his movies, three or four of his movies end with the world ending. Both escape from New York movies. uh, If I can can say spoiler, but the hero, the anti-hero dooming the human race to, you know, destruction and in fact assault on precinct 13 probably of all the carpenter movies has the most upbeat ending there's not a single element of the last 30 seconds of the movie that's anything but there's no carpenter gotcha ending no every other carpenter movie has something at the end even christine where it's just the the metal starting to reshape Mm -hmm. there's some element of not so fast things are still shit the world's still gonna go south which in today's climate is always like, oh, there's going to be a sequel. It's like, no, it's, it's a, not, John Carpenter ending. It's John Carpenter. As Car- we talked about on, on like one of the Halloween commentaries, yep. that Halloween is not Halloween 2. Here we go. Mm-hmm. It's it, He's still alive. You didn't get him. He's out in the parking well, we lot can't. waiting for you as you walk to your car. That's right, the point. You don't point. get to have the feeling of security mm-hmm. that we've got the bad guy. You don't even know what, what he was now. And yeah. that's that. No, he's, he's definitely, uh, you mentioned the B-movie thing. Like, he makes i've always credited him with making the the not oh i hate to say elevated but like he's uh making a i don't know better production valued b movie while never forgetting it's a b movie as well like embracing the b moviness of it by pushing limits a b movie can't while still pushing limits on himself that he might not have the resources to do that's kind of how i feel like he goes for it like 
with his stuff. Like Escape from New York almost feels like it's too big for what he might have, but he still pulls it off. Agreed. In the meantime. It barely feels like it's holding up the tape and stuff outside of the frame. Right. Which is one of the reasons that I think Escape from L.A. is sacrilege to say, but I think it might be the stronger movie. Hmm. Because it is one of those projects where the more money, even though the special effects are notoriously bad, I really think that second one feels like the guys who made the first one just playing with a bigger, a bigger, a bigger playground. I think there's a better understanding of that second one now, um, because well, I mean, because they, I mean, we're we are talking about Assault in Precinct 13 this week, folks. But Sorry. Escape from New York was written by a guy in California about a futuristic New York, so it's just could be any prison city and then escape from LA is actually the guy who knows the city adds right. the flavor to it. So had he known more about New York, that movie probably would have played a lot differently and closer to LA, right. but they're both pretty fun. Like I used to be like, Oh my gosh, that LA there's some, there's some 90s stuff that's like uh, about it, but overall it's a pretty enjoyable movie. I think looking back, yeah, it gets revisiting. dismissed. By, yeah. Oh, did I cut you off? I'm sorry. Mm-mm. It gets dismissed by the crowd who say, well, that's the same movie. You just did it again. That's not fair. That's the fun that, of it, though. That's the fun <laughs> of it. That's the that's the they basically chose the same frame, brushed off all the jokes and added all new jokes. Mm-hmm. It's great. It's great. They, they, they maximize the amount of macho ridiculousness that uh, that's Nate Pliskin, which, of course, as you said, is is evidenced here by the Darwin Justin. Uh, yeah. Character. And He's- Napoleon was in Napoleon. John- no, Napoleon. He's that line about women and sunsets. They're both so goddamn precious. Right, yes. The guy who, I do know this, the guy who plays, although I'm not going to know his name, the guy who plays the big sort of hulking uh, cop or whoever he is who Mm -hmm. uh, sort of abuses him in the scene at the beginning. Right. is the same actor who played Scar in The Searchers. He plays the bad guy in The Searchers. So, So that's another... Call back to Ford. Obviously, it was another. It's Wilson, Napoleon Wilson. Napoleon Wilson. And they've got the running gag about the cigarettes, which would be like something like Snake Plissken with I Thought You Were Dead or something like that. Very. I'll tell you in a minute. I'll tell you you in my dying moment. Only in my moment of dying. Oh, it's a different gag. Yes. Got a cigarette, and then he says, Why are you called Napoleon? And he's going to tell you in the moment of dying. Right. Which is great. Yeah, he's, you know, classic. Do we even know what he did? Is he a bank robber or is he a murderer? We never get it. They want to. They want to ask him. Point. He won't. He won't share. The point is, what is what is a, a, an external pressure that would cause them to join forces? Which yeah. Is How but thrilling. The, 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 I mean, there's the the whole thing of you don't need to care about what this guy was. You need to care about what he can do for you now. Like right. He he may have ate a baby, but you need this guy to hold the fort down with you right now. Like it's the ultimate, like the compromise, the the teamwork that you couldn't expect from from where you have. Like that's what you, that's what you need. like. And, and why is he helping? Who knows? Who cares? He's helping. It's a great hook, and it's not something that's in real Bravo or not in the Living Dead. This idea that the station is shut down mm-hmm. and that they're just sort of. A, spending the last night tending to this shutdown station. And that's when the gang members attack to get revenge on, which is also a nice element that, that it starts off with the gang members being set up and sort of slaughtered in an alleyway by cops. Right. Carpenter again is always leftist liberal, always going to be pushing that the system is crooked and the cops are crooked. And that, which is, you know, one of the things that makes him great, especially all during that eighties. 
And probably one of the things that went against him in the 80s was that yeah. very, I mean, in a time that was rah, rah, Reagan 80s, yeah, he was, he was anti-capitalism, anti-Bible, anti, like he was pushing against and that, that could, I mean, not all the critics were these like liberal right. wonders back then. Um, and he was doing it in horror movies and, and that that that's really the, his John Carpenter's career is the kind of career that got people excited about American movies in the first place, like in mm-hmm. France started noticing auteurs there well, i've always said I, halloween looks european it really does the cinematography oh, cool. yeah with this idea that you can spend your whole career making movies that are not oscar movies yeah and not really examined that closely or considered to be just sort of gruel for teenagers in the in the malls and his entire filmography then is unified by his constant mis- misanthropy and his constant sort of comic cynicism and heroism with cynicism it's he does it he gets to do it uninterrupted through his whole career in a way that he might not have been able to had mm-hmm. he been uh, making the kind of sort of mainstream dramas and thrillers in fact his last really good movie is i think ghost of mars which is a, almost a straight remake of again the this movie because it has the yeah. same thing. it has the ice cube is, is is napoleon wilson again right that he's which was uh evolved from his uh escape from mars script which was no the kidding. which was the third uh escape from yeah they were supposed to work on that and then after la tanked he reworked the script to be ghost of mars so therefore you have that snake plissken archetype because it was at one point snake plissken oh no so i do what, like that one a lot but yeah that makes sense it did tank kind of last it's, it's a shame yeah la yeah. and the thing with the carpenter is if you look at his projects that didn't happen he was never aiming at those oscar things no no like his Oscar closest thing he got to like was Starman with like Jeff Bridges getting a nomination. Right. Uh, that's the closest. That's the closest lane came, came to a lane change. Yeah. Was making this, I think, really terrific grown-up version of ET. You know, that's about yeah, beautiful way of looking at someone dying that you're in love with. If they sort of come back as this. Yeah, his you know, projects on the ground are like a creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh, right. remake and and things like that like it's it's not all these like firestarter, prestige right? the first guy on firestarter i think oh yeah yeah he was fire yeah he was firestarter till the thing bombed and then he got he got taken from that they all Which, bombed, all these movies bombed again it leads a, a unimpressionable me to think well john carpenter sure stinks big trouble yeah. little china yeah I didn't like that when i was a kid i thought it was terrible <laughs> and then when i was 25 i'm a huge fan of it you know like, yeah yeah, it's always like always like I always have, I'm always a fan, and I always uh, said like if you don't like a movie, give it some time, maybe revisit it again. You might have been in a mood, you might not have been the age, things might have, the world might have changed. You know, you've been a kid and now you're an adult. You didn't get it. It's tons of like, and you know what? The presentation might matter. Matter like I used to not care so much about a lot of Italian horror films, but thanks to like. Shout Factory Arrow video, like all these people cleaning them up, and I'm like, man, these are wonderful. What was I thinking? I'm I like, think oh. yeah, it was a combo of Argento and Carpenter movies started coming mm-hmm. out in the in the mid '90s. Letterbox, yeah. And Carpenter is certainly someone who, I mean, I I can't excuse my youthful smugness entirely mm-hmm. on, but his movies are. They used to say it about Nicholas Ray, who's a big cult director, obviously from the sort of 50, '40s and '50s about a movie like Rebel Without a Cause, that if you were seeing a pan and scan version of it, the art, the artistry didn't exist. Mm-hmm. You might like the story, but you're never going to appreciate what makes it a special film. And Carpenter was so good at that Panavision blocking. Yeah. And that that it, all through the 80s, you're seeing it on, on HBO, you're seeing 
partially panned and scanned versions of these wide yeah. wide everything he ever made i think uh, after dark star is 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 you know that was in the theaters was maybe not the, the ward but yeah oh well is his showtime the body bags that that wasn't yeah, for showtime and, and, yeah screen either but like, i think what what else uh there, i think there was one in there that that's not maybe that sticks out but in that in that run but yeah they're all that's what he, that's what he liked. He liked westerns. The guy was a western. Oh, oh, bad news, westerns. But that was the genre stuff. Like that was what they all grew up on. And I love speaking of that with like this film and some of his other ones. Carper never tried to like bring back a genre or a type or something directly. Like he uses the current film climate and adapts what he loved about those things into it, making it feel like one. But he's not like a period piece guy at all. But he'll make his western in his own way like and it's really neat it gives him kind of his own makes things more of his own than just going i'm gonna make x genre film like i'm not knocking guys like that because i like what tarantino's done with westerns but definitely yeah, that was that's that's the that's the classic you know because he not only did he did all these widescreen versions of his movies come out in the, in the mid nineties and late nineties, mm-hmm. um, his, uh, he did commentaries for all of them. He was one of the first guys to do like commentaries for most of his movies. So you got to know him listening to these mm-hmm. commentaries. There's an excuse for him to sit and smoke and talk. They're wonderful commentary tracks. You learn the nuts and bolts of filmmaking. And he always, at least once unironically says, you know, this movie's, uh, it's really secretly a Western. Right. For most of his movies, you can really go, yeah, I guess it is secretly a Western. Oh, yeah. 100%. 100%. Halloween is a Western. Halloween is not, to me, secretly a Western. No. It could never be a Western. Escape from New York could be. Escape from New York could be. Big Trouble in Little China was initially, right? It was written as a period. I think so, yeah. Uh, Most of them could be. They live. You can do the thing as a Western. Like, yes. Like Cowboys and Aliens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They live. Uh, despite the stranger in town element, could not really be a western. I don't no, think. No, definitely, but, definitely uh, not. It's a dark. This would be a fun western, <laughs> right? This, so this movie, like, I really like. There's people in the cast that weren't like happy with their performance and stuff, but I think they're all pretty good. Like, I like Austin Stoker. It's a, it's a, a shame he's not like a bigger star than like he's got. Like this movie, uh, the final Planet of the Apes movie, right. and uh, I think he did one of uh, Pam Greer's um, yeah, coffee Brown? knockoffs, Sheba Baby. It was Sheba Baby. Sheba Baby, yeah, yeah. Well, he was probably the biggest star for this, yeah, this movie at the time. Um, and it was obviously made in a short, ter- pretty pretty short turnaround mm-hmm. on locations, sort of drab locations in L.A. I was hilariously discovered that the actual the actual external building they use for the police station is just right around the corner from me. Oh wow! Yes, yeah. My buddy drove in. Look at that! Look at that! What do you think that is? I'm like, I don't know. It looks familiar. He's like, Yeah, that's the that's the police station from Assault Act 13. You gonna go drop a vase full of blood in front of it in honor of the honor of the movie? What do they call it? There, the, the cholo. No, the, the cholo. Yeah. Oh, you didn't tell me about the cholo. Yeah, <laughs> the guy from Rocky. Right, Tony Burton. Tony Burton, um, yes. yeah, he's played. Do- he, yeah, he was one of the constants throughout all the Rocky movie. He always Stallone always brought him back. Like, yep, he's quite good in this too. He's great. He has that. That was my answer and received message for about a year when I was eighteen. Was just his line about, "I got this plan. It's called the Save Ass Plan." 
Yes. About me running like a bastard or whatever he says. That's all you would get. And beep, and you would leave a message. Just after oh. this. What, what and, was that? I don't recognize that. And that's totally one of those moments that being a person who's seen Night of the Living Dead like a billion times, uh, that's the, the go to get the pickup truck scene and the gas thing goes yeah. on fire and blows up that's exactly what that is and that's it's fun to see it's fun to see those moments that are those touches you're like oh that's where he's getting that or that's where that came from um and this character is kind of like so and so it's it's kind of kind of interesting and there's but there's no real there's no real animosity between a lot of the characters i mean nancy loomis's character has a little bit of it but nothing to where they all can't talk and work it out right type thing. there's no like Oh, we're going to do it this way or this way or this way. Like everybody's willing to cooperate with one another. Yeah. I've never seen the remake, but I know what you're talking about. In I haven't of- either. I, yeah. yeah, I hear it's okay. It's probably pretty good, but yeah. In other siege movies, there's a lot of usually a few pages wasted on disagreements. I mean, which they have in this movie, but, but yeah, it's really, again, there isn't time. It's just one wave of attack after another. These people in this nightmare situation, you know, which, I mean, if you're, if you're a night of the living dead fan and you've, like let's say you've seen that a bunch, but you've never seen this, and you go into it and you spot the Night of the Living Dead stuff, you're probably yeah. anticipating a downer ending. Plus, it's John Carpenter, so you're probably right. worried about Austin Stoker come the end. True, and maybe it's a nice twist surprise that it's a friendly walkout ending. I'm trying to think of other movies that would have been in this genre of siege movies that he's drawing upon. I guess Zulu. Did you ever see yeah, Zulu? Zulu. Oh yeah, I had to watch that in uh, in college. I had to watch Zulu with Michael Caine. Yeah, it's kind of a yeah. seat movie on a larger scale. Yeah. I would say this one kind of, I don't know, it's coming at the tail end of like, you know, exploitation films of like action, the the, the black exploitation films, it kung fu stuff. Good. And it feels like this is the, it, while it's done just like one and there, it kind of feels like, oh, they got a real talent here. This is like the prestige one of like, because it's even sold in the trailer like an exploitation. It's, it's totally, it's like, it's like a police station. People going. It's got the. It's like a hardcore, be real. You know, is it Forty Second Street type double feature movie? Yeah. But you watch it and you're like, yeah, this is too classy to <laughs> not not say that those aren't. But you just see that Carpenter has a lot more talent in, in them. Even though he's shooting this in twenty days, yeah. he wrote it in eight and he scored it in three. Like. He's showing a lot more chops. You're like, okay, this guy's special. Yeah. What is the tag? The tagline on that early poster: "The hottest night of terror the world has ever right, known." Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I always wonder about those eight day. How do those people do eight day scripts and they turn out so good? I always wonder. Oh, yeah. That's why I love. Like I've always talked, but like my love of slashers and I like a lot of low budget horror and stuff because you f- you see who the talented people are like mm-hmm. big time and it's very impressive when you when you see them. Like okay, there's. A billion slashers out there, but when you see the one with a talented person, it's pretty awesome. Uh, it's pretty pretty marvelous to be like they had they had the same or less resources than this guy and made this with it. Like it's crazy, but uh, I tend to like these. And Carpenter's like an early standout of this kind of stuff because he didn't come out with the like prestige that uh, you know Scorsese, De Palma, Luca. Like he went to the same school. He was around the same era as them. Like he well, he was like the next wave. But he didn't have like this ushering in. He wasn't even buddies with these guys, and he made it for himself. Like without them, like he was with O'Bannon, who O'Bannon would go on with 
Hill, unfamously, would be his his collaboration there wouldn't go so well. Um, right. But I also, I don't mean to speak ill of the dead, but I, I've noticed the history of that guy whining a lot about things that were act really right. good, and he's not happy with it. He, he did not like Assault on Pre-Seek 13, primarily because he was jealous that Carpenter did this after Dark Star, and he had nothing. Um, he didn't like Alien. Yeah, but I've, I've noticed a history of, of people he's worked with, and then they do something with something, and he's not happy. But um, I do think Dan O'Bannon's a talented guy. I've liked a lot of stuff he's worked on. Um, but sure. yeah, but yeah, Carpenter's not like he's USC film student, but he's not with those guys. He carves his own path. He starts really low budget, but none of them like pick him up. None of it. Like I don't. He didn't do any produced by anyone else. Like. It's just, yeah, it's interesting. He's like the one guy who didn't fall into the sort of becoming a Spielberg Amblin director. Yeah, but Spielberg, I, I do think Spielberg liked Carpenter's work. He picks up Dean Cundey. A, oh, yeah. a lot of his early 80s movies that weren't directed by him have a Carpenter look to their cinematography. Like, yeah. like Poltergeist and Gremlins look like John Carpenter. E.T. looks John E.T. looks John Carpenter like. Like there's there's something going on with him that I'm seeing in Halloween and the fog and, and this that sort of evolves to like what the Amblin look ends up becoming. Even though Spielberg does have some of that, there's Yeah. You can tell he he likes something with Carpenter's work. But sure, I'm sure. I I'm sure. And I'm sure he made offers to him to, to, to get him into that circle that eventually had Joe Dante and Toby Hooper. But Carpenter's like, I do my own thing. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> it may just be that that's the kind yeah. of guy he is. He may just really be this guy kind of guy through and through a sort yeah. of... Uh, Carpenter gets in with De Laurentiis a bit. That's where he ends up having his ties. Right, right. But that international market might have got to him before everybody else because, you know, Assault was big in Europe. Halloween was big in Europe. So maybe they drew him in first. Yeah, I didn't realize that, but I saw today reading up that George Romero had stood up and... and I guess Martin was there. I mean, it was a Cannes festival somewhere. It was there the same year as this mm. 13 and Romero. That's where Romero became a huge Carpenter fan was from, from seeing the film there. Um, gotcha. Yeah. The world where these guys all come together is like Stephen King movies in the eighties. Yes. That's where everybody, that's like where they all start to have, start to be working around each other. Some of these guys that aren't Spielberg and, the people that Spielberg takes under his wing, but yeah, Cronenberg's and that's true. Stuff. That's true. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, what's his, the guy who ended up doing Firestarter? What's it? He's actually, I actually, Mark Art? Lester. Yeah. Commando dude, right? Yeah. Yeah. Commando. I actually like playing. He did uh, class of 84. Yeah. Which, I like which is a very Carpenter like movie. Like Mark Lester might be John Carpenter light. Like, I like uh, Firestarter. I like just yeah. the fireballs. And it's yeah. got the Carpenter-esque score. We haven't talked about the score. Oh, yeah, yeah. This thing's ahead of its time. This is probably, this is before Tangerine Dream becomes a thing, right? Yeah. I put it on today earlier just to watch the, the Blu-ray. And I was reminded again how the first sort of two or three seconds of the movie is just black. And mm -hmm. you hear the score almost rattling like a rattlesnake. It's like, tss, 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 tss. yes. And then the score. I don't know what the history of minimalist electronica electronic scores mm -hmm. before this movie it, it, it was i'm sure science fiction there's a bunch of electronic scores well, they, yeah but they're not they're not like what would come with sorcerer and tangerine dream when that lifts it off but like i know uh Hodorowsky was looking into that with 
his Dune adaptation oh, that never Lord. happened. So he was bringing stuff like I know Tangerine Dream was in there. He wanted Pink Floyd in there. Um, that was all becoming a thing. But like Carpenter's doing stuff that he he they they say it's a this score was inspired and supposed to be a cross between uh, Schifrin's Dirty Harry score and Immigrant Song by Led Zeppelin. Yeah, I I, I had not thought of. I mean, Dirty Harry makes sense, but but yeah, I guess Immigrant Song makes sense too because it's. Mm-hmm. Dun, 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 dun. It's yeah. basically yeah that. It's a I mean yeah. how, uh, the score for In the Mouth of Madness always sounds like Andrew Sandman. Yeah, <laughs> yes it does. Carpenter's a big rock and roll guy. He had his band, the Coupe de Ville. Yeah, with, with Coupe de Ville's with Tommy Lee Wallace. Right. Yep. They uh they were yeah, and he was a big Blue Oyster Cult guy too. He got those in them into Halloween, which John Carpenter yeah. looks like he's cosplaying Blue Oyster Cult. Back in the yeah, day. it looks like he has cosplay. Louis really sure does. Yes, he had that. that <laughs> yeah, he had that that hardcore long hair, mustache, seventy look going on. But yeah, he and I always felt like when I watch and I have the book. Um, it's a great uh, coffee table book of John Carpenter. Uh, the person uh, she was on set for all of his movies through Christine, I think, and she took behind the scenes photos back when uh, not a lot of people were doing that. Uh, but his sets always look like a good time. And I was like, when I was, he's a director that when I was first learning about film really attracted me, uh, because his sets always look like not a lot of people. It looked like a collective familial unit yeah. and everybody was sure of their jobs. Everybody treated every, it seemed like everybody treated each other fairly. And you'd see these pictures and you'd hear about his films like, like Halloween really intrigued me because I was like, that's the kind of stuff I would like to make that makes me feel like I could pull off a movie. Um, not so I'm not trying to belittle Halloween, but that's like sounds like, oh, you don't need like semis and crews and like all this stuff. Like you just need like fifteen people around like, you know, everybody's helping out and, and things like that, and it sounds like like they're having fun making John Carpenter movies. He said this was the most fun he ever had making a movie, which yeah. a- ask him during those 20 days that he was shooting it, maybe not, but looking back, he's fond of it. But Halloween sounded like a fun set to be on. The Fog sounded like a fun set, even though they had to go back and reshoot a lot of The Fog. But no, like his his movies seem to have a lot of fun. And I'm, I've never heard any performer, like granted, he didn't like working with big names because egos and stuff but i've never heard a bad word about john carpenter working with him well you can tell the the bonhomie you hear in those comments you know the commentaries with kurt russell with jamie lee curtis Mm -hmm. one with 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 jeff bridges right they obviously have a they obviously have real affection for him he must be sort of a character probably pretty fun to hang out. He's like a father figure for Jamie Lee Curtis. Like, because I mean, who who her parents were and him and Deborah Hill being uh, the producer, director of his first movie of her first movie. Really? She really latched to them. And she was on set for a lot of his movies throughout the eighties, just because those, they were like mom and dad to her. But like, yeah, Kurt Russell and him got along very well. Peter Jason, of course. Of course. Right. But yeah, just, seems like but he never yeah he tends to find people and he not he tends to, you know he says he just doesn't like working with big names because he wants to make his movies that's pretty much right to find you said he didn't the only person i ever heard saying he didn't like him was uh tom atkins mm. some ain't it cool piece years ago he was talking really? about 
he never really liked John Carpenter. And it you just were in like three of his productions, felt, man. <laughs> I know. It felt to me like he kind of melt, melt like, you know, I can see Tom Atkins inviting you out for a beer at the end of the day. And I can see Carpenter being like, nah, nah, man, I'm going to go. I'm just going to go. Right, home. right, right, right. You know, and sometimes people don't like those kind of people who are sort of just generally motivated not to be too social. Um, mm-hmm. and, but I think, you know, who knows? I, I see I, Carpenter I, being a really focused on the movie till it's all done type guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And not not a romantic, not a despite Starman, not 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 someone who seems to, you know, the cynicism seems to be tr- real. Mm-hmm. And that's probably why he ne- you never heard about him trying to direct Out of Africa or Ragtime. He was never developing some big Oscar movie. He seemed to yep. stay in his uh, his lane early on. And like the kind of guys that initially got French critics to, to love American movies and develop the auteur theory. You look on John Carpenter, hoping his hoping his career is not over. Who knows? Right. I would be fun with his, you know, marijuana and basketball and video games. Like <laughs> he deserves to have his feet up and enjoy his life because he's literally. He says, "When I have something to say again, I'll I'll make a movie." But he truly, if he doesn't have anything to say, he's not going to just go make a movie. That's what he's. That's what he said. And you know, it's funny. Like we talk about how he never made Oscar bait movies and stuff like. What's who's living it through his like fruition and fantasies? Guillermo del Toro, who's not making what you'd call Oscar movies and stuff like that, but they're getting praised as such. Yeah, that'd be the equivalent of like giving uh, the Prince of Darkness, you know, a Best Picture nod or something like that. That's feels like the area or del Toro found a way to tune it to where they appreciate it in a way. But Guillermo del Toro feels like he is like taking a torch from Carpenter, where he's like. He's not interested in making those kind of movies. He's just making his movies, and they're finding him. Like, he's not making pop music. His music has become pop music or something like that. But even he, you're never going to see the Academy give a, a an Oscar to a 93-minute horror movie. No, know? no, no, no. Which is, the, which, is, which, is, which is just what they go for. You know, Car- Carpenter's stuff is just not... Like I say, he's someone who I'm sure his career was quite frustrating in mm-hmm. terms the amount of money he was able to get after the thing and the amount the level of budgets he was able to get but he's just the kind of filmmaker who becomes a hero to later filmmakers because you look back on his career every single one of his films feels like a john carpenter film and every single one of them has his personality in it which is dark and cynical and funny you know jokey cynical but really cynical mm-hmm. you know like and right. that's you want that when you look at a filmmaker's work to see this commonality. Oh, there's Carpenter again doing his, you know, giving the finger to religion or giving the finger to government, <laughs> giving the ops, you know, like right or the whole human race. <laughs> which, he, which in this movie he adds um, Hitchcock's classic cop story. He gives it to Austin Stoker to talk about, where Hitchcock oh, talked about true. his father putting him in jail. Um, just to teach him a lesson with the cops and scare him, and that's uh, given to Austin Stoker here. Um, That's a good point. I never thought that is the same story. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's pretty pretty interesting. Um, and yeah, speaking of other stories, uh, funny funny anecdote I found here. So at the time this was made, he had two scripts he was working on. One was called Eyes, which became Eyes of Laura Mars, and this. But he decided to sell the rights to Eyes of Laura Mars to to keep it relevant here. Um, and for those of you have seen Licorice Pizza. You're going to get a kick out of this. It was sold to John Peters and Barbara Streisand. So 
He picked this over that one. It was sold to John Peters and Barbara Streisand. We renamed the Eyes of Laura mm-hmm. Mark. And then instead of Streisand playing the part, they got Faye Dunaway to play it. Irvin Kirshner directed it. Right. I didn't see it until a year ago, probably. And I kind of liked it. It's a very naughty, yeah. fun. TV movie. Hollow-esque um, New York slasher thriller. But it opens with a Barbara Streisand song. Mm-hmm. Like a, the full performance of a Barbara Streisand song. And the credits like, why is it Barbara Streisand? And then I look, oh, I see. They bought Carpenter's script. And then Irvin Kirshner you know, whatever, whatever. But, but yeah, interesting. I saw that too early that he was working on these two scripts. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's a pretty funny thing. Um, and this one was also his, his, like we talked about, uh, the camera that type he uses, but this was his first experience ever with Panavision and cameras and lenses. Does a pretty damn good job with them. Oh yeah. And yeah, this is what I'm talking like. It's, it's funny that a movie, this like because this is default big screen movie now for a lot of filmmakers digital but like as intimate and claustrophobic as this movie is it looks so much bigger than some of these big spectacle action movies that get put in this same aspect uh ratio same lens uh, well they're not using a lens they're just cropping it later on right Um, but like it's so the frames are so fully realized. There's so much information, even in a medium or close shot of somebody. And that is just, it's stunning to see just like reminding me of uh, Tarantino's hateful eight, which takes place largely in a cabin, but looks way bigger and way has way more depth, way more information. The single frame tells such a tale compared to a lot of these blockbusters using that because I guess that's what big movies do. That feels like that's the only purpose it has in being that size. But right, well, there's a reason that we love these guys from this era, the the first and second film school generation guys, because here you've got what could be a a a movie that's just you know cops versus gang members, you Mm -hmm. know, grade Z B movie, Uh, and. And instead, you've got a guy who was went to film school, and, and not only did he grow up watching John Ford and Howard Hawks on television, but he went to film school where they showed him three hundred movies, you know, from Griffith and Murnau and Borzaghi and all these, showed him everything, mm-hmm. and led him out into the world to be a filmmaker. And he brings all that to bear on the making of this simple movie, and he can just tell that here's somebody who's seen everything, as they yeah. say, like he's seen everything that you need to see to understand how visuals got to where they are and he's bringing that all to bear on a, on a movie that it, it could just be very simply done. It would, it wouldn't have any, nearly any value to us. However many years later it is now almost 50 years. Mm-hmm. The fact that he figured that, it, that, that he figured he had, that it just made sense to make it as well as he could. And using these things he had learned, I mean, it becomes this durable item that. You yeah. Know, we're talking about. Well, I mean, and like we forget, like it's to forget what, what does film have over the other storytelling mediums? It's this. It's the cinematography. Like you can get dialogue in books. You can get dialogue in radio dramas. You get dialogue on yep. TV. You get dial. You know, there's so much focus on what dialogue nowadays. But I'm like, this. Is what what does film have? And then when you shoot something well, oh, you pretentious asshole. Like, no, no, it's art. It's good. Like this is why it's different. And then, you know, that's yeah. why. I, that's why I get. And we don't see it so much anymore. That's why, like, I get like emotional with something like West Side Story plays. I'm like, oh, cinema. <laughs> like, it's like, oh. look, it's real. It's a real thing, yeah. and it really, 
movies got better and better and better and better for most of their history. And, and, you know, yeah, you know, it's just not all the people talking about older movies and older movies shouldn't be forgotten. Mm -hmm. It's really not just this nostalgic impulse to protect things that we loved before. Right. It really is like, no, if you look at assault on precinct 13 or any John Carpenter movie and you compare it to, an average movie from 2021 or 2022, especially a comic book or action movie that's also shot in a scope aspect ratio, you're, you're gonna you're gonna see that there's a, something's been lost or ignored. The the language is is not there anymore mm-hmm. that gives the film a cumulative impact and makes it something that my God, you go into a dark theater with strangers yeah. at 10 o'clock at night and watch this intense experience on this giant screen in the dark, the idea is, is, is to make you like a brain in the jar and just, just experiencing this thing. Like it's almost happening. Right. It's the kind of VR that you ever really wanted or needed. You know, it, it was that kind of thing. And the further we get away from the, 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 the glorious peaks of that, you know, the less people have ever seen it and know what we're talking about when we rhapsodize about a movie like this, you know, that it's not about, it, it's got a great plot. It's got great characters and it's incredibly tight. But, it, you know, it's it's something more than all of that that makes it such a such a special movie. And, and the reason that I picked it to talk about on this, you know. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great movie. Um, I highly recommend pretty much anything like he's in the Hitchcock and Kubrick category with me of like, <laughs> see everything, see it all. He's the guy. He was the first guy that I realized the critics can be wrong. And yeah. It was the first pet, the real first pet director I had where I was like, no, everybody's wrong. He's awesome. <laughs> He's great. I, I got to see it was right. I became a fan right before Mouth of Madness. So I got okay. one great, great, great Carpenter movie more. And then I think a few more pretty good ones. Hey, uh, I am a kid. I had the vampires poster in my room in high school because I was a John Carpenter poster. I got my hands on from the video store yeah. from somebody. So I rocked it. Yeah. Not his finest hour, but. Still an interesting. It's a western. It's another western. It's a western. I kind of wish he had just cast someone else in the lead. I probably would have seen it more than two or three times over the years if it wasn't just a James Woods movie. He's yeah. fine, but man, if it was somebody else, if right. it was something that I really thought was kind of cool, it would yeah. work. It was an odd it's, choice even then. Like that's it was it was. Yeah, Solid Prixie Thirteen. Uh, to. To epilogue it here, uh, the person who would end up acquiring to distribute the film was Erwin Yablons, the Erwin Yablons, Trancus International Films. He would found, which would hire Carpenter to uh, do his next film, The Babysitter Mo- Murders, which would become Halloween, which because of this movie, uh, Donald Pleasance's daughter said, you need to work with that guy who would be Dr. Loomis in Halloween, Tommy Lee Wallace, Nancy Loomis, who would eventually marry each other and divorce, would carry on over as well as Charles Cyphers. Um, it was, yeah, and it just continues onward to grow, but it's it's there from here onward, and it's just pretty impressive that it takes off like that, and he's formed. Yeah, the next one... This one is relatively obscure. The next one, which is just as simple as story, if not simpler, yeah, getting installments. <laughs> you know, like I said, it's crazy. Uh, Imagine if this had been the one that I'd fit. 
Yeah, <laughs> more assaults and more precincts. More, yeah. which we haven't mentioned. It is not precinct thirteen in the movie. It's division thirteen, precinct nine. But thirteen's a cooler number. Sounds like the bad luck precinct. Yeah, I can see what I'm going with it. What else? This is where we just kind of talk about anything else we've taken in recently. Books, TV, movies, something we may have written, put it out in the world. Uh, so, Yancey, what else? Well, I'm continually I'm about 15 episodes into this Kolchak series. Oh, the <laughs> Night Stalker. I got Kolchak the Night Stalker, the Kino Blu-ray set for a real deal. And I've been getting I've been watching those every night. And really not every night, but every couple of nights I watch one. They're very it's a formulaic 70s show and then it's the same story it's a procedural time. yeah but it works the monster of the week thing works i enjoy it there's a comfort to that nowadays for me like there's so much serialization i've gone back to like watching old shows that are like you know random columbos here and there you know like i'll know the end of the mystery right 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 so that's i've been enjoying that what else what else swimming through that giant criterion citizen kane i finally after However many years, <laughs> 45 plus years, or many years since I first thought I finally came around to realizing how great Citizen Kane was, just with this Blu-ray release. No, then, like, I, I hadn't seen it. It had been a while, enough time distance that it felt so fresh and new again to me that I was just like, man, this thing badass. Like, it is from frame one. Like, I'd seen it probably 10 times before, because you love movies. you got to see Citizen Kane mm-hmm. all, over and over. I feel like I'm smashing at the outside of this thing, trying to understand what the people who love it really love about it. And I always admired it. And then suddenly, the other night watching it, and I, now I love it. Now I, I totally get it, and I love the character himself. So just been sort of slowly watching all the stuff that's on that which is such a wonderful thing to, to have too and, and you know for criterion you know people are taking advantage of that i hope they took it back they had a uh, laser disc they had citizen kane and then they well, i think warner just started putting out dvd what when dvds yeah. were coming out and then they got it right here and that was a heck of a debut um for being on for their 4k for sure yeah oh, fantastic fantastic uh I see i watched all Scream movies and preparing for Scream 5, which I mm-hmm. liked a lot. Um, realized I didn't like Scream in 3 and 4 as much as I thought I did. Yeah. So it goes. So it's it goes. still a very watchable series all the way through. Very, very. Yeah. But those are running on fumes a bit. And I this new one was... Yeah. Had the, the, so the real stuff again, which was nice to see. It's definitely um, a big surprise. What about you? What are you going to watch? Uh, my what else? Um, I... I uh, Recently revisited Juice, which I don't know the last time I watched Juice was the Ernest R. Dickerson uh, directorial debut. Um, in the theater, the last time I ever saw it. Super energetic. Uh, very much, you can tell very much that he was very big part of Spike Lee's voice in his early films. Like it's got sort of that energy. He takes it to darker, some darker places, and he adds. Uh, a lot more suspense and action to what he's doing that Spike would tackle later. But there's there's just a random scene where uh, Tupac and uh, Omar Epps are running from the cops just down alleyways and uh, through a stairwell. And he films and cuts it in such a way that you're just like, oh, sh- oh, the, like the danger is 
they'll get caught and questioned. That's I mean, they're not going to get killed. But like they, he cuts it away that it almost looks like the police is going to grab him, and he doesn't. It almost looks like the police is going to grab him, and he doesn't. And it, I was like, really, really effective scene. And Tupac is a heck of a acting debut for him in that one. It was pretty, seemed pretty the fully 4K, formed, huh? The four K, like a UHD. Yeah, it's a four K. Yeah, it still has the crappy five point one that it had before. I guess um, did my research around because I didn't have the previous edition, uh, but yeah, it was a. It's really it's like a teen thriller. I would say good teen thriller it comes in that gets. Uh, it tends to be loaded up in that bunch of menace to society and boys in the hood and uh, New Jack City it tends to be as if that's like some sort of universe of movies where it's just like no we're we're gonna let black directors tell black stories how's that yeah. <laughs> you know like uh, but no it's a. It's got a it's got a good uh, energy, a s- strong voice off the bat from Dickerson, who's done a lot of like TV um, and genre stuff. Wind up, yeah, classic example of a, a great cinematographer who went on to being I don't want to say less than distinguished, but it's kind of like Jack Cardiff, mm-hmm. who was all those you know Archer movies, and then he, he went off and like directed Conan the Destroyer and. Directed a lot of sort of bad movies in the eighties, and, and and not to say Dickerson did, but he did. What did he going to do? Demon Knight. Demon Knight. Fun. Mm-hmm. Fun. And uh, he did not do Trespass. That was Walter. That was Hill. that was Walter Hill. Yeah, Walter Hill, yeah, Sierra yeah. Madre. Yeah. Yeah, I only saw Juice once. I remember the last line: "You got the juice now." Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I still haven't seen. I haven't seen it. It's a freeze frame. I think. Yep. Yeah. I haven't seen it since that day or that afternoon. But that's nice to see that it's surviving and it's got a new. Yeah, I'm sorry that Paramount's like, hey, let's do that. Like, Paramount's been in good deep... Like, their 4K selections have not been very predictable, but they do seem to put... they Well, they have recently, in the last couple of years, had someone else take over the home video department that actually cares about the catalog, that actually wants yeah. things, that respects, like, your Arrow videos, your, you know, um, Vinegar Syndromes and stuff. Yeah. Yes. Um, so they've, they've been really hauling through that catalog... Um, even if it's just getting something out there with like a budget release that's not been out before, they are they are on it. So definitely. Um, I don't know if juice if you have juice, I would recommend the 4K waiting till a discount price because there's nothing else but the transfer on it. It's new. So but, uh, yeah, well that that'll do it for today, Yancy. Thank you so much for stopping by. Good to have you proper on the show and talking John Carpenter. This is a good chat on Carpenter uh, with the uh, assault, assault on Precinct 13 as the background. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I knew this would happen. But it, but it works. Let people know where they can keep up with you uh, around the, if they want to follow you on a social media or something like that. I'm on Facebook as Yancey Burns. I'm on Twitter as Yancey Jack. I do have a blog called The Milky Way Blues that I need to start committing to publishing or stuffing much more often than I have. It's been quite a couple of years, I think. And I'm raising a boy. We have another boy coming in March, a two-year-old and another son coming in March. So I can't say I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I've got too much free time, but I do feel like I owe myself to, to start, eventually start a blog or, or a podcast because it's so fun. You know, and today I was like, how are we going to talk about, I was kind of anxious. What are we going to talk about for an hour? Like I love it. <laughs> and I should have known we could have talked for six hours about going down various rabbit holes about John Carpenter and 80s movies and whatnot. Yeah, it was an absolute pleasure. There it is. All right. Excellent. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Brandon4KUHD. Written work at WhySoBlue.com. There's more from the Brandon Peter Show this week. But until then, stay film positive. Thank you for listening. 
The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Alsman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. Additional information on this and other episodes at brandonpetershow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at brandonpetershow.com. The show is available on Apple Music, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found.